0: Well, one of the things I've been really looking forward to is this particular Sunday. The last two series we did, What Is the Bible Good For? And Angels and Demons, Do You Believe in the Supernatural? has kicked up a lot of questions. And you should know here at Gateway, we're okay with doubts. We're okay with questions. In fact, I want to encourage you to lean into those doubts. See, I grew up in a context where doubts were not allowed. Uh, Questions were not being answered. You know, you just got to believe, and if you don't, too bad. And that was really hard for me. And so I want you to know, whatever your doubts or your questions might be, lean into them. Allow your doubt to be what fuels you to get to know God better. Because I guarantee that He wants you to experience the fullness of a relationship with Him. He wants you to become who He's created you to be. And there shouldn't be any question or doubt that gets in the way of that. So to help us with that, All these great questions have come in, uh, along with some interesting ones. And uh, you're going to enjoy this as we hear from different leaders throughout our campuses. If you're new to Gateway, you may not know this. We have six different campuses in the Austin area, in Pflugerville, North Austin, Central Austin, Dripping Springs, Buda. And so you're going to hear from several of our leaders today answering some of your questions that you sent in. And so listen with an open heart and open mind and check this out
1: how can we trust that this the bible is what god wants for our lives well i've been given two minutes to answer that question that's such a big question and so
2: i don't think i could do it any justice and so instead i'm going to point you to the series we just wrapped up uh, called what is the bible good for a lot of great information in that so i encourage you to go back and watch that But instead of trying to answer through historical facts and data, what I wanna do is speak to the heart. You know, this book, is it wasn't written by Greek philosophers. It's not a Western book, it's an Eastern book. And the geography of thought and the thought pattern is all Hebrew. And the Hebrew didn't write to the eye, they wrote to the ear. And that's the the difference between Western thought and Eastern thought. You see, in the West, we wanna prove through what we can see or even disprove through what we can't see instead of listening to what God may have for us. I think about King Solomon. King Solomon asked for wisdom from God, but it's it's actually way better than that. That word wisdom is, is not the actual word. What he asked for was a Lev Shema. Lev meaning our entireness, our muchness, our, our allness, and Shema meaning to hear, to hear the heart of God. And that's the distinction. And I think that's how we have to engage Scripture, with the Lev Shema. I think about people in Iran and India and in China and in underground churches right now, persecuted for their faith. They can't even have a Bible in the open, let alone altogether for risk of their safety. So they maybe have pages of Scripture or maybe a page of Scripture. And I doubt they sit around the circle and go, well, hey, why don't we have this book or that book? Or why don't we have the gospel of Thomas or even the secret life of Thomas? You see, they're not worried about what they don't have. They're worried about what's right in front of them. And they're not engaging it through the eye only. They're engaging it through the ear and letting that transform their heart, letting God transform their heart. So I think the same has to be true for us. We have to stop trying to prove and disprove but what we see or what we can't see. And instead we have to turn the ears of our heart towards God and be transformed through that. And so maybe stop worrying about what's not in front of you and start worrying about what is in front of you. And those are my thoughts. What about the
3: Gospel of Thomas and books in the Catholic Bible and other missing gospels? Well, in reality, the
0: New Testament was written by eyewitnesses or for eyewitnesses during the lifetimes of those who were actually traveling and those who had actually seen Jesus alive from the dead. And it began to be passed from church to church, from city to city. And eventually, as years went by, the pastors and leaders affirmed that these were from the eyewitnesses. These can be trusted as what is true about Jesus, about 100 to 200 years later, a a Gnosticism began to develop, a different way of viewing Jesus. And those folks began to write their Gospels, their stories, which were not based on eyewitness accounts, even if they attributed it to someone who was actually with Jesus. And so it was at about that time that they began to pull together and officially create the canon. And it seems like a long time for us, but they didn't have wireless communication It took a long time to pull everybody together. We can trust that what we have as the New Testament is what God wants us to have. And by the way, when things like the Da Vinci Code come out, you should know it's
3: in the fiction section because it's fiction. So why are there many versions of the Bible? Which is the most accurate and which is most beneficial?
4: The purpose of the Bible is not just information, but also transformation, so it's important for us to be able to understand what we're reading, which is why there are so many different versions of the Bible. Scripture was originally written in Hebrew and in Greek and then translated over time into different languages such as English. Some of the translations are more idea for idea or concept for concept, while some are more word for word as we know there's so much nuance in language. For example, if I say chips in English here in America versus if I say chips in English in England, we're gonna have two different meanings. And so it's important that we use both types of translations to get a holistic understanding of Scripture and God's Word.
0: Which rules from the Hebrew Scriptures the Old Testament still apply? I mean, it seems like Christians arbitrarily keep the sexual morality ones, but throw out the ritual ones?
1: And that's a great question. You know, when we think about the Old Testament laws, we have to remember that when they were written, they were actually written within a theocratic government or a theocracy. They didn't live in a democracy or a monarchy. It was a theocracy. There was no separation of church and state like we have here in our context. And so when they wrote the laws, it really folded in all different aspects of life, whether it was civil, ceremonial, or moral. And as we read the Old Testament, we actually have to do a little bit of parsing ourselves, like what was for the context, what was uh, the civil law, uh, what was ceremonial or having to do with the temple life of the Israelites, something that we keep separate from the state here uh, in the United States. And then there's also the moral issues, what's actually right and wrong. So I'll give you a quick example. When it comes to doing something that we don't like doing, but we have to do, it's, we're talking about paying our taxes, for example. There are civil, even ceremonial ways that we go about it. And they all envelop this thing that we call morality. Uh, there's a, a civil obedience or almost civil responsibility when it comes to paying our taxes. We have to show up. We have to pay on April 15th or we pay the, uh, pay for the extension or file for the extension. Uh, there's a ceremony to it, right? We have to do it online, or maybe we have an accountant actually do all of the dirty work for us. And then there's also the moral issue, uh, showing up as a responsible citizen. That is a right or wrong thing. Uh, so the same thing is true when you look at some of the Old Testament law. For example, we don't keep some of the kosher eating laws because we really do believe that Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Uh, meaning that all the different sacrifices, all of the rituals that used to take place actually pointed to the coming of Jesus uh, as the great sacrifice, as a high priest. Uh, so we don't follow some of the ceremonial laws anymore because they've actually been fulfilled in Jesus, but some of the civil laws as well that were only particular to the people of Israel, those we, we don't follow, but when it comes to big moral ones like the Ten Commandments, for example, do not commit adultery. That's something that is true across all cultures, across all time.
5: All right. So, Ricky, of course, uh, they give us uh, the dumb questions because we're youth pastors. Uh, unique, well. unique questions. Well, yeah, unique.
3: Uh, it's not like we have degrees or anything. Um, uh, it's all good. I didn't go to Bible college. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Not in crippling debt for any reason. For sure. So, so. for the first question, actually came in in crayon: uh, it's uh, could Jesus fly? I guess if he wanted to, if he really had to be somewhere quick, I, yeah. I don't see why not. But. but there's that one time he forgot his cape. Yeah. And so he just ascended into heaven. Then
5: he's going to come back and get it, right? Yeah, he, that's why he's
3: coming back. That's okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I missed that part. How
0: can
6: we believe the Bible when it seems to contradict with science? Like Genesis says, the earth and all species of life were created in seven days. Yet we know the earth existed billions of years before human life. You know, oftentimes, apparent discrepancies between science and the Bible can find resolve if we don't just quickly come to judgment and throw the Bible out, but we study and try to understand. So, for instance, yes, there are Christians who believe that the days of creation in Genesis are literal 24 hours, um, and they have their reasons for that, but there are also many Bible-believing Christians who believe the days were actually long periods of time, even millions of years. And I believe there's room in the Bible to interpret it that way, and I'll explain why. Really, three reasons. The first is, you have to remember Genesis is being written by Moses. So apparently God gave Moses a vision of creation since Moses wasn't there. And so it could be that the the days where, where Moses is saying, and then there was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, are actual days of Moses receiving revelation. So in that first evening and morning, he receives revelation of watching God create the universe and space-time. The second evening morning, he watches the formation of, of the earth and the waters on the earth, et cetera. Now, the second reason is because the word, the Hebrew word for day is yom, and it's used flexibly, just like we use day. So we use day to mean a literal 24-hour period, but we also say things like in the day of Jesus or in the day of the dinosaurs, and that, of course, represents long periods of time. Well, actually, in Genesis chapter 2, so right after Genesis 1, the word yom is used to mean a long period of time. It says, in the day, or yom, God created the heavens and earth, so the whole of creation. And so yom right there in the Bible is used to mean a long period of time. The other thing we remember is that in First Peter 3, it says that to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So God's time works differently than, than our time. The, the third reason, though, is because there's this cadence of, then there was evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. But when it comes to the seventh day, it doesn't say there was evening and morning the seventh day. And we find out that God rested on the seventh day. And we can see from other places in scripture, like uh, Psalm 95 and Hebrews 4, that God is still in that day of rest and that we can enter that day of rest. So the seventh day apparently hasn't stopped yet. So it's clearly longer than just a short period of time. But here's the main point is that as Christians, we can hold to the things that we confidently know. You can confidently know that Jesus was foretold, his coming was foretold by God so we could know his life, his death and resurrection, incredible evidence. So we can trust what we know about Jesus and and what Jesus said. We can hold tightly to those, and then there are other secondary or tertiary matters of Scripture that Bible-believing Christians might differ and argue over, but we can wrestle with them without dividing over them.
2: You said the Bible is one consistent story, but it seems like the Old Testament God is a God of wrath or the New Testament God is a God of love. How do you reconcile this blatant difference? Uh, I'm gonna answer this question
7: in three short parts. First, it's really important how we take in Scripture. There's multiple ways we take in Scripture. Many of us, we really only hear it on a weekend, or we listen to a podcast, or somebody else's opinion of Scripture. It's really important that you and I take the time to read Scripture so that we're not assuming what other people are saying and how they interpret Scripture is true, but that we take ownership of reading Scripture. So that's one, just to be aware of. Number two, there really is a consistent story of God throughout Scripture, Uh, and there are two major themes that we see a God of love, and a God of justice in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus, who is God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we have to take that at face value that where are the pieces of God's love throughout all the scripture and the pieces of God's justice? And really in the Old Testament, we know this, when you go to Deuteronomy chapter six, the first law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul. So the challenge isn't just obeying God in the Old Testament, it truly is loving God. And in the New Testament we see him sending his son Jesus out of this overwhelming love to die for you and I. And then throughout scripture you hear about justice, that God really does care about what is right and what is wrong. Here's a practical application, the third part. Libby and I are married, we've been married for 22 years, we have five kids, and the age difference between our oldest and our youngest is 15 years. Our oldest kids inevitably tell us, you're so much easier on the younger kids. You were hard on us. You made it very difficult for us. And then our younger kids say, the older kids have all these crazy memories and all these vacations and all these cool things you did. And the truth is, it's the same home, same culture, same values, same consistency, just different contexts in which they see us as parents. We were younger, had one or two kids. We could afford the big vacation. Now we have five kids. We get more creative with vacations. And then we've learned how to better lead our kids. And so it isn't that we don't love them or we're harder on one or the other. It's how each of them interpret how we love them and how we bring justice. It's the same way when we go to scripture. All of us bring us to scripture. But I wanna remind you that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I God of love, and a God of justice.
5: If the forces of darkness know they will lose, then what is evil's end game? So we see over and over uh, demons in the New Testament interact
3: with Jesus and they say things like, have you come to judge us before our time? Have you come to torture us before our time, right? So they know things are not going to end well. But their mission is to prolong what scripture calls the day of the Lord, right? This moment where Jesus will return and will make everything in creation right again. In other places in the Bible, it's called the time of the Gentiles. In essence, evil wants to drag as many people as possible as far away from God as they can. That's why Jesus activated his disciples and thus activates us as his followers today to reverse this cause life by life. Uh, In fact, it's to storm the gates of hell one change hard at a time. Acts chapter two is this moment, this beautiful initial reversal of the Tower of Babel where the nations go astray and it's God reclaiming the nations under Jesus to himself, something that he's still doing today and he's gonna do fully when he returns. So hell knows that it can't stand a chance uh, and it just does what I did with my college papers. It prolongs and procrastinates the inevitable.
4: What about all the evil done by Christians, the Inquisition, the
8: Crusades? Yes, without a doubt, those who call themselves Christians have been deceived by evil and done horrific things in the name of God. This isn't new. Romans 2.23 says, "'You who boast in the law, "'do you dishonor God by breaking the law? "'As it is written, "'God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles "'because of you.'" God hates it when his name is used to do evil. In fact, God gave the Israelites 10 primary guidelines to follow. And one of the very first ones was, do not take the Lord's name in vain. We often presume that to mean, don't say OMG, but actually it's far deeper than that. The Israelites would have known that taking the Lord's name in vain meant associating God's name with behavior, actions, and circumstances that were not of God. This guideline was given to the Israelites because we as a people have a proclivity to connect God with our own agendas, however twisted they may be. Remember, it was the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the experts of the law who crucified Jesus in the name of God. So what this means is that we can't just look at what people say, but how they act. And we can't judge a perfect God by imperfect people. So yes, Grave evil has been done by people who say they're Christian, and that sucks. It continues to be our reality today. But our invitation is to follow God's will and his ways, living in the way of his perfect love and perfect justice.
5: All right, more questions from a middle school boy. Um, Could God make a rock so big that he
3: couldn't lift it? Absolutely. He did already. Uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, the people's champ.
7: So where do demons come from? Are they the same as the rulers and principalities that Paul talked about? Take it away, Ricky.
3: So short answer is no. Demons and the rulers and principalities, they are not the same, uh, but they are on the same team, right? Spiritual darkness. They're just, demons are just at the bottom of the hierarchy, if you will. Uh, One view, in fact, in Hebrew tradition is that the demons that we see in the New Testament, the ones that use people as sock puppets and possessions, are actually the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, these figures that we see in Genesis chapter six, right before the flood event. If you want some more information on that, I would highly recommend reading Dr. Michael Heiser's book, Unseen Realm. Now, the rulers and principalities that we see were uh, at, uh, at first, they were good spiritual forces, that God assigns after the Tower of Babel to rule the nations, but everything goes wrong. They begin accepting human worship. uh, They begin leading mankind astray, accepting human sacrifice, and everything spirals out of control. It's why God pronounces judgment on these figures uh, in places in the Old Testament, such as Psalm 82. Um, And we see this held worldview of cosmic geography, if you will, right? Rulers and principalities over regions and nations, all throughout the Old Testament, whether it's foreign gods, whether it's the figure in Daniel that we see, that Prince of Persia figure, or Paul when he visits uh, Mars Hill and he's talking to the philosophers and he says, hey, I see that you have all these statues of these gods. Let me tell you about this unknown God that you have a statue for. So long answer short, demons, principalities, same team, bad guys, just different rank.
6: And what if you know someone who is demon possessed? Don't date them. Now, seriously, I would be very cautious to declare that you know someone has a demon or is demon-possessed. First of all, we can't know. And, and second of all, um, we have a, a wrong characterization of demon possession. That actually is not biblical. The Bible never uses the word demon possession. It uses the word demonized, which is more a picture of being spiritually oppressed or, or tormented. And here's what we have to realize, that the demonic are like rats that feed on spiritual garbage. So uh, if you have spiritual and emotional garbage in your life, like like shame or pride or bitterness or hatred or resentment or unforgiveness or self-hatred, those kinds of things are like the garbage they feed on. So get rid of the garbage and you get rid of the rats keep the garbage and they have a reason to stick around and feed and grow stronger and just make your problems worse. But the demonic are not really the source of your problems. The spiritual garbage is. So if you suspect that someone is, is struggling in this way and being oppressed or tormented in some way, first thing to do is help them know they have faith in Jesus. Because when we have faith in Jesus, we have a, a power source and authority as we're, we'll talk about uh, to overcome that so that's first and then the second thing help them get rid of the spiritual garbage help them know what God says is true to clean up all shame to make amends with people to to get to get right um, because that that takes away that stronghold um, it says in scripture resist the devil and he will flee from you so you can resist in Christ you can resist we see Jesus doing this by standing on what's true and resisting the lie. So in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And every time, Satan accuses him and, and lies to him. But interestingly, Satan even quotes scripture, but just twists it to make it into a lie, uh, to try to tempt Jesus. Every time, what Jesus does is he stands on what God says is true in the Bible. He quotes the Bible. And Satan keeps coming at different angles, but after three times, Jesus resists him with the truth, and he he goes. You can do the same, and you can help others do the same. And then the third thing is, help people know the authority they have if they have accepted Jesus into their life, if they've accepted God's forgiveness through what Christ did. You know, Jesus said, I've given you, his followers, all authority to overcome all the power of the evil one. And so if someone feels like they are being tormented or oppressed, sometimes maybe it's with suicidal thoughts or very damaging, discouraging, or self-defeating thoughts, they can they can just take authority and say, no, I am a child of God, I belong to God, and in Jesus' name and by his authority, leave. You have no right here. And just stand in that and keep in that, and you'll find they start to leave you alone. So the long-term solution is learning truth like Jesus said, to to live by his truth, and it'll set you free. In the short term, many times prayer can really help, and that's where I would encourage people to go see our prayer team as well, as that can help release and give you freedom. Uh,
5: okay, so this one came in from a sixth grade boy. Um, if uh, both football teams are praying to win, how does God determine who's gonna win? Ricky, that's that's all you, man. Easy.
3: Uh, it's in... Uh, 3rd Corinthians, uh, he actually flips a coin, just like you and I do. Except if it's uh, UT, uh, he's never in favor for that one. So Obviously. Yeah.
4: Why is the God of the Bible a man? Why a patriarchal God revealed in a patriarchal society?
5: So, hey, guys, one of the questions that, that you sent in is, why is God referred to as a man in the Bible? It's a great question. First and foremost, God is not a man, Uh, God is not a woman, but the question comes from a really great place because throughout scripture, we do notice that God is referred to as him or his or he or father as opposed to mother. And so you can see where there's some tension that I think we get from that. It's important just to remember that the time that the Bible was written, The societies that the Bible was written in and to and and from were very patriarchal. Now, this is in a broken world where sin has led to a place where, where societies are so patriarchal. But that is the reality of the times when the Bible was written. Most importantly, it's important to remember that Jesus comes along and the best representation of God that we have is Jesus, right? God in human form and he comes along and immediately starts to do things that shake up the culture at large immediately, crossing all kinds of these boundaries that had been put in place, like he would have women following him as his disciples. Right? You think of Mary and and Mary Magdalene, you think of Joanna, you think of uh, others who were really students of Jesus, which was unheard of in the day. You think of the way that he crosses um, crosses a cultural line just to go and sit with a Samaritan woman, a woman of very questionable reputation, and much to his disciples' surprise, he goes to meet with her. And ultimately, you think of the empty tomb, which it was the women who first found the tomb empty. So really, the women first come to find a resurrected Jesus, and that is all by God's choice. That's really important. Because again, God is not a man, God is not a woman. In fact, I bring us to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we read this, I'm sorry, verse 27. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But it's important to remember, we're reading English language here, translated from Hebrew writings, where it really says that, so God created Adam. And the word translates not man like me, like a man sitting here in front of you, but as mankind or humankind. So he created humankind in his own image. And then we read, male and female, he created them. And I would say that the best way for us to think of God is that he is best represented, at least in human form, by both man and woman. In fact, i take it one step further to say it's really, it's in community together that we best represent the image of God, thus the church itself really best represents the fullness of God.
0: There are many other questions we didn't get to, and if you sent them a question that was not answered, we're going to be sending you an email with an answer. But there was one question we wanted to, I wanted to answer in person. Uh, uh, someone wrote, if I'm, committed to loving and serving other people and bettering myself? Why do I even need a relationship with God? Well, there are several things that come to mind. The first is I don't know about you, but when I try to love and serve other people, I don't really do it as well as I would like. When it comes to bettering myself, there are some good days and there are other days I make people cry. <laughs> you see, even in my own strength at doing my absolute best, I can't get to where I want to be. I can't even meet my own standards. I need God's help. But I also think of this sense of this missing piece in my life, in all of our lives, that we need, that can only be found in a relationship with God, the one who loves us, the one who created us on purpose and for a purpose. We experienced a tragedy um, just last week, it was on Monday night, that an elderly man who had left his great-grandson in altitude all day from 10 in the morning to 10 at night. He had actually killed himself here in the parking lot. And they reached out to us as soon as they could and Sulinda and Ricky and Mike and Tara and John Lee were all a part of serving the staff. Now, when you think of the altitude, their staff are like 16, 17 years old. Some of them witnessed this. Some of them knew this little boy. And what Ricky mentioned to me after having several conversations with some of the staff that were grieving and struggling was, you know, if you don't grow up in this context, no one is telling you how loved you are. No one is communicating that you're here for a reason. And we take that for granted, many of us. And so I just wanna say out loud, God loves you. He wants you to experience the fullness of life that can only be experienced in the context of a relationship with him. And all that that darkness that we experience and feel, he he can be the one that clears that out with light. See, he's the only one that's come for us. That's what Christmas is about. We're celebrating that God came for us. No one else is coming. He came for you and me. He lived a perfect life and he willingly gave his life dying on the cross and rose from the dead and he's still alive. Jesus is still alive. And you can know that sense of his presence and his peace when you say, God, forgive me. I want you to lead me. If you've never made that decision, I just want to encourage you to do that even now in your own heart. And if you had made that decision, maybe you've wandered away. Maybe you've just gotten so busy doing good things, soccer season, new business. But I wanna encourage you to make following him a priority. Take your questions, your doubts, your struggles and lean into your faith and lean into this community. Let us help you grow to become who God wants you to be. And you know what, we need your help because there are others that need you to help them grow to become who God's created you to be.